All right, greetings everyone. It's great to be with you today through our online campus. I hope all of you, wherever you are, are staying healthy and safe. This weekend brings the second message in our series called Faith and Family. And basically what we're doing is we're spending four weeks talking about different issues related to marriage and parenting. Now, as we began last week, we began by talking about threats to marriage. And if you were with us, you know we did this in a little bit of a different way. As I began by spending some time having a conversation with our soul care pastor, Ken Jones, about two specific threats to marriage. And those two threats were the things we bring into marriage and the things we allow in marriage. Then I followed that up by talking about the truth that since God is the creator of marriage, we simply can't stray from His words and His will when it comes to marriage. God created this world and everything in it with a plan, and that includes marriage. And we get in trouble in our lives when we wander away from God's plan. And so, as we begin week two and we continue to talk about marriage, here's the question before us. What does God have to say when it comes to marriage? Or another way to phrase it would be, what is God's will for us when it comes to marriage? And there's only one way to answer that question, and that's by looking into the Bible, which is the revelation of God's will to each and every one of us. This past week, I did something that I've never, ever done before. I tried to open my Bible and identify and read every single verse and every single passage in the Bible related to marriage. And I've got to tell you, it was extremely difficult because while there are certainly Bible passages that are clearly written in the context of marriage, there are also many other passages that, while not written in the context of marriage, have a powerful application to marriage. I'm talking about passages about relationships and how we're to treat other people and love and things like that. For example, no one would argue that Genesis chapter 2, verses 24 and 25 uh, is written about marriage. This is what that passage says. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and they will become one flesh. The man and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. But what about these words from 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 4 through 7? That's where Paul writes and says, love is patient, love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It is not rude. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, and always perseveres. Is there anyone who doesn't think those words have a strong application in marriage? And yet nowhere in 1 Corinthians chapter 13 is anything said at all about marriage. You know, there are a lot of Christian men, or at least I know a lot of Christian men, who can only quote one verse in all the Bible when it comes to marriage. And that's Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 22, where Paul writes, wives submit to your husbands as to the Lord. But what about the verse right before that? Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 21 Because before Paul gives this instruction to wives to submit to their husbands, he gives this instruction to everyone, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And I have to believe those words have an application for marriage as well. So as you might imagine, it was difficult for me to identify and read every verse and every passage in the Bible about marriage. I mean, what do you include and what do you leave out? 
In fact, I was writing all of these passages down on a blank piece of paper, and I took a picture of it, of what I had written down. I think we have that picture to show you, uh, and you can see all the different verses. And here's the deal. The ones that are written on the page, this isn't all of the verses. I stopped after 32 different verses and 32 different passages so I could actually begin writing the message. Here's my point. While there are passages in the Bible that deal strictly with marriage, we have to embrace the value of everything the Bible teaches us about love and about relationships, about how we're supposed to treat each other, because many of those passages, many of those verses complement and strengthen the foundational passages we have on marriage. Let's just go back to that Ephesians 5 passage I mentioned just a moment ago. I'm going to put Ephesians 5 and verse 22 up on the screen so you can see it. Again, these are familiar words to a lot of people, especially a lot of men, a lot of husbands. Paul writes and says, wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. Now, I hope that you remember, if you've been a part of our Mount Pleasant family for any length of time, that we've talked about this verse over the years, and I've told you that that word submit in the original language of the New Testament is the Greek word hupatasso, which was actually a military term in that it meant to arrange or to line up in order. And basically, it reminds us that God has a divine order for the home. And that order is realized when a wife voluntarily chooses to yield to her husband's leadership in, her, in the home. It's not a word of value. It's not a word of worth. It is a word of order. But uh, as I mentioned just a moment ago, the verse right before that, that's Ephesians 5.22, that says, wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. And the verse right before that, Ephesians 5.21, says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. We can't ignore that instruction in our lives and in our marriages for any reason. Now, I don't know if you'll remember this, but I can remember having a, a teaching in a marriage series before. I think it was a series called For Better or For Worse. And I told you that when you look at Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 22 and you study it in the original language, you'll discover something interesting. And that is the word submit is not actually in the verse. Now, that's interesting because that's the one thing about the verse that most people remember. Because remember again, in our English Bibles, Ephesians 5.22 says, wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. But in the original language, in the original text of Ephesians, the word submit is not even in the verse. In fact, sometime today, uh, open up your Bible to Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 22 and see whether or not the word submit in your Bible is written in italics. Now, if you have an older translation of the Bible, it might not be the word submit. It might say something like this, wives be subject to your husbands as to the Lord. So see whether or not the words submit or the words be subject to are written in italics. If they are, that means that that word or whatever the words are that are written in italics is not in the original text. And so the obvious question is then why is it here? Why does our English Bible read wives submit to your husbands as to the Lord if the word submit wasn't in the original text? Well, the answer is really simple. And it goes back to the verse right before it, Ephesians 5.21 that says submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. 
When Paul was writing this letter, he, he writes, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. That's verse 21. Then he immediately writes verse 22, and he says, wives to your husbands as to the Lord. Or in other words, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. That's verse 21. And then verse 22, and as a first example of this, wives to your husbands as to the Lord. Now, translators included the word submit simply as a way to clarify the meaning. And the reason why I give you that information is that you can make the case. You can honestly make the case that Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 21 is just as significant when it comes to marriage as Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 22. The command for us to submit to one another is just as significant as the command for wives to submit to their husbands. And yet we don't think Paul begins talking about marriage until he gets to Ephesians 5.22. Now, don't misunderstand me. Do I believe the Bible teaches that husbands are the head of the home? Absolutely, I do, because a little later in Ephesians 5.23, we read, for the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church, his body. But clearly, clearly, both husbands and wives have the biblical responsibility of submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. And listen, that in no way, shape, or form disturbs God's divine order for the home. What it does is it enhances God's order. God gives wives the instruction of submission because God understands something about submission that we don't. And I'm talking now again about the submission of a wife in a marriage. Submission has a transformative power. You should write that down somewhere. Submission has a transformative power. I'm going to put the words of 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 1 and 2 up on the screen. This is what those words say. Wives, in the same way, be submissive to your husbands, so that if any of them do not believe the word, they may be won over without words by the behavior of their wives when they see the purity and the reverence of your lives. Peter is telling us, that submission has a transformative power. The humble submission of a godly wife has transformative power. And let's just acknowledge the fact that these words are written not by Paul, but by Peter. This is 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. Both men write about the submission of wives, but when Peter writes about the submission of a wife, he adds this clarifying truth that submission in the life of a wife has a transformative power. And of course, he's writing this in the context of a believing wife who's married to an unbelieving husband. Her submission has the power to transform the unbelieving husband's life. Uh, let me give you an example. I read a great story this week about a Hindu woman who was converted to Christ through the ministry of a missionary. But as a result, she suffered great persecution from her Hindu husband. One day, the missionary asked her this question. When you're husband is angry and persecutes you, what do you do? And this was her reply. Well, sir, I cook his food better. When he complains, I sweep the floor cleaner. And when he speaks unkindly, I try to answer him mildly. I try, sir, to show him that when I became a Christian, I became a better wife and a better mother. 
And the result of her submission is that while her husband could withstand the preaching of the missionary, he couldn't withstand the preaching of his wife. And I'm talking about the preaching of her attitude and her actions as she was submissive. And so as a result, the husband ultimately gave his life to Christ as well. Now, I love stories like that because they teach us this truth about submission. A wife's submission is powerful because it has a transformative power. It has the power to convert an unbelieving husband. But really, there's more to it than that, because I believe that a submission from a wife also has the power to continually transform a Christian husband. Her submission does that by reflecting such powerful Christ-like behavior that it challenges and inspires him to pursue Christ-like behavior as a result. Wonderful truth from God when you really dig in and you study His Word here. Now, I could talk more about this, but I got to get back to my original point. And my original point is this we have to embrace the whole counsel of God about attitude, about our behavior, about how we treat one another, about relationships, along with His specific counsel about marriage, if we're going to have strong marriages that honor God. And so what I want to do with the little time I have left is just highlight two specific words that the Bible makes clear are critical in marriage. And you're probably going to want to write these down if you're taking notes. Now, the first word, number one, is just simply the word love. But the tagline for this point would be this, Christian marriages must be grounded in love. And I can imagine you're probably thinking, well, that's not really new. That's not really very clever. That's not very different. But I want you to bear with me for a moment because when I talk about love, when I use the word love, I'm actually talking about a very specific kind of love that really encompasses so much of what the Bible says about our relationships with others, about how we're to treat other people. And of course, I'm talking about what we call agape love. You know, the New Testament was originally written in the Greek language. And the Greeks had four different words to describe love. There was the word eros that described romantic or sexual love. There's the word phileo, which described fondness or friendship. There's the word storge, which described family and loyalty. And then there's the word agape that describes a love that is unconditional and a love that is persevering. Now, I'm just going to talk about two of the four. When it comes to marriage, people often focus primarily on that eros love. Remember, that is the romantic or the sexual love. And this is completely understandable because marriage is where God gives us the gift of sexual expression. Marriage is where God's gift of sexual expression is supposed to happen. In other words, God intended, it's the will of God, for sex to happen inside the covenant and the commitment of marriage. And regardless of anything you may have ever been taught in the past about uh, sex, anything you, any misguided belief you might have about sex related to God, you need to know this. God is absolutely pro-sex. He's the one who created it. And the Bible teaches us that God created sex. He created sexual expression for two fundamental reasons. Those two fundamental reasons are number one, procreation, and number two, pleasure. You see that right from the beginning in the book of Genesis. For example, Genesis 127 says this, God blessed them, talking about 
the man and the woman he created, God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it. And there's the procreation. That's one of the reasons why God created sex and sexual expression. But then a little bit later, and we referenced these verses earlier in Genesis 2, verses 24 and 25, this is what we read. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and they will become one flesh. The man and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. Now, friends, there's the pleasure. Sex is a gift from God to husbands and wives that bring them together in a physical union. That's seen in the words one flesh. And notice again, I want to emphasize this. I said sex is a gift from God to husbands and wives because the Bible is clear that God's will for sex is that it happens exclusively in the relationship of marriage. But sex not only brings husbands and wives together in a physical union, it's also a significant part of the intimacy God wants to see between husbands and wives. It's not the only part of the intimacy, but it's a significant part. That's seen in the words, the man and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. And so this one flesh union and this intimacy that we see in Genesis chapter 2 teaches us that sex wasn't just created for procreation, it was also created for pleasure. But here's the deal, and this is so important. Sex alone, eros love alone, cannot sustain a marriage. There's got to be more. There's got to be more to your love. And that's where agape love enters the picture, because agape love is a selfless love, and that checks the box, so to speak, for so much of what the Bible says about our relationships. Let me just show you what I mean. And I'll start with a passage that we already talked about earlier in the message, that passage from 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 4 through 7, where Paul writes and says, love is patient, love is kind, it does not envy, it does not boast, it is not proud, it is not rude, it is not self-seeking, it is not easily angered, it keeps no record of wrongs, love does not delight in evil but rejoices with the truth, it always protects, always trusts, always hopes, and always perseveres. Now listen, Paul is not talking about eros, romantic sexual love here, he's talking about agape love, that's literally the word he uses in the original language. And who, listen, who would debate the necessity of all of those qualities of love in a successful marriage? No one. How about Colossians 3 and verse 14? Paul writes in that verse and says, and over all these virtues put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. But what's he talking about when he says over all these virtues? Well, The two verses right before that, verses 12 and 13 say this, therefore as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with, note this, compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive whatever grievances you may have against one another. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And then he goes on in verse 14 to say, and over all these virtues put on love which binds them all together in perfect unity. Now I'll ask the same question again. Who would debate the necessity of things like compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience, and forgiveness in a successful marriage. See, it all has to be included. One more. Look at these words on the screen from 1 Peter chapter 4 and verse 8. Peter simply writes and says, above all, above all, at the top of the list, love each other deeply. Why? Because love covers a multitude of sins. And once again, 
Just like in 1 Corinthians 13 and in Colossians chapter 3, the word that's used in the original language is the Greek word agape. It's not eros love. It's agape love. You can't build a successful marriage that honors God on anything less than a selfless and sacrificial love. And that's what agape love is. Eros love, romantic love, sexual love, that's a powerful thing. And it's one of God's greatest gifts to man. No question about it. Hands down, it's one of his greatest gifts. But it won't sustain a marriage relationship on its own. A marriage that's grounded in agape love, though, can overcome anything. Because it's grounded in a love that's selfless and humble and gracious and forgiving and kind and on and on and on. And that's why this love, this agape love is so important. That's why marriages have to be grounded in love, but not just any kind of love, this agape love. One last thing before I move on from this, Uh, this is that mature love that our soul care pastor Ken Jones talked about last weekend in that video conversation that he and I had. Remember, we're talking about two threats to marriage, the the things we bring into marriage and the things we allow in marriage. And at one point, Ken, and he did a great job with this, told us that there are really three stages to marriage. There's the bliss stage. That's like the honeymoon period uh, where everything is great. And that's when the eros love is so strong and so passionate. But then he said, ultimately, that gives way to what he called the great awakening. That's the second stage of marriage. And that's when you realize the honeymoon doesn't last forever, and you realize your spouse isn't perfect, and you realize that marriage can be difficult, and there can be conflict, and on and on and on. Oftentimes, you don't know how to deal with the conflict. And Ken said that couples will come to him for counseling who are in that great awakening stage and saying, you know, what's wrong with my marriage? Because they want to go back to the bliss. But what he teaches them, how he counsels them is that they can't go back. They need to go forward. And they need to go forward into the third stage, which is mature loving. And that mature loving is this agape love because it's selfless, it's sacrificial, it, it, it is more focused on what it gives than what it gets and on and on and on. And that love is essential for a successful marriage that honors God. Now, real quickly, let me give you the second word, and I'll try to do this fast. The second word, write this down somewhere, is the word guard. The first word was love. Marriages must be grounded in love. The second word is guard, and the tagline would be guard your heart. You want to have a successful marriage that honors God, then guard your heart. I'm going to put Proverbs chapter 4 and verse 23 up on the screen. I'm sure it's familiar to many of you. This is what it says. Above all else, guard your heart, guard your heart, for it is the wellspring of life. That's the way it reads in the NIV Bible. Sadly, one of the most common things I have seen as a pastor over the years is the heartbreak of infidelity. I'm talking about when one spouse is involved in an extramarital affair. And as I mentioned also in my conversation with Ken last week, as I think about different people that I've known who became unfaithful in their marriage, I, I know that the vast majority of them did not set out to be unfaithful. They didn't go looking for someone to be involved with. They just let their guard down. They just didn't guard their heart the way they needed to. I don't know if you'll remember this or not, but a few weeks ago in part one of a, of a two-week sermon series uh, that we did called Better Together, I talked to you about the fact that there are multiple words in the Greek language that are translated sin. One of those words is the Greek word paroptoma, paroptoma. 
And the literal meaning, like in a Greek lexicon, would read something like this, a lapse or deviation from truth and uprightness. A more practical meaning, and I hope you'll remember this, I told you was to miss your step. And it's the idea of slipping or stumbling or tripping or falling. Now, no one, no one goes out and purposely tries to miss their step. No one goes out and tries to trip on the stairs or, or slip and fall on uh, wet or icy pavement or anything like that. Nobody goes out looking to fall. But it happens at times because we're not as careful as we should be. Now, as I told you before, that doesn't mean it's any less of a sin just because you didn't go out looking for it. But the overwhelming thing about it is it's usually something that didn't have to happen. And that's what I see so often in people who fall into infidelity and are unfaithful to their spouse. They just, they didn't, they let their guard down. They didn't guard their heart. So let me give you four things that you can do, you can do to avoid missing your step and stumbling when it comes to being a faithful spouse. The first thing, thing is this, and I want you to write these things down. Don't neglect your spiritual life. Don't neglect your personal spiritual life. And I'm going to go back to Proverbs 4.23. Remember, it says, above all else, guard your heart. Guard your heart, for it is the wellspring of life. Now, you know, because you've heard me say before, that the word heart in the Bible is a reference to the very core of who you are because it's a reference to your mind. And everything we do in our lives begins in our minds. And so we need to pay attention to that. In Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, Paul writes and says, since then, you have been raised with Christ. Since, since, since you became a Christian, since your life has been changed and transformed by Christ now, he says, set your hearts on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. Since you've been raised with Christ, set your heart and your mind on things above. That's another way to say, don't neglect your spiritual life. When we make the commitment to set our hearts and our minds on things above, what we're doing, friends, is we're guarding our hearts and our minds from making wrong choices. And so don't neglect your spiritual life. If you're strong in your spiritual life, you're going to be strong in your marriage. Here's a second thing. Here's a second boundary or or a guardrail, whatever we want to call it. Be a part of a larger community. In other words, don't allow yourself to be some kind of a solo Christian, some kind of a lone ranger Christian who's off doing life alone. Be a part of a group, whatever that group looks like. Listen, that's one of the reasons why we so strongly encourage and challenge people here at the church and in all of our campuses to be connected to some kind of a small group. We all need to allow people into our lives but not just allow them into our lives, we need to also allow them permission to speak into our lives. We need to let other believers, other brothers and sisters in Christ who care about us, act as guardrails for us in our lives to make sure we don't veer off course, especially when it comes to someone who's not our spouse. Let me give you two verses from Proverbs chapter 27. The first one is Proverbs 27, 6 that says, wounds from a friend can be trusted, but an enemy multiplies kisses. While everyone needs people in their life who love them just for the sake of relationships, what we need to understand is that we need people in our lives who love us enough, not just to hang out with us, but to say the hard things to us that sometimes we need to hear. 
That's why Proverbs 27, 6 says, wounds from a friend can be trusted, but an enemy multiplies kisses. Listen, there's a lot of people who'll just tell us what we want to hear. We need people in our lives who'll tell us what we need to hear. The second verse from Proverbs chapter 27 is verse 17 that simply says, as iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another. And the bottom line with that verse is we all need people in our lives who are there to make our lives better. And one of the ways they can do that is by loving us enough to protect us. And listen to me, sometimes loving us enough to protect us from ourselves and bad choices that we might make. Here's a, here's a, third, uh, here's a third thing we need to do. We need to set some specific boundaries for our lives. Let me tell you one of the worst things you can do in your marriage. And, and listen, I'm, my wife and I have been married for almost 39 years. I've been a pastor for 40 years, counseled people about marriage for a long time. I'm not speaking uh, uh, about these things from somebody who doesn't know from experience. One of the worst things you can do in your marriage is you can think this thought, that will never happen to me. That will never happen to me. Because when you think that way, you go off thinking there's nothing you need to do to proactively protect your marriage. But look at these words on the screen from Proverbs chapter 22 and verse 3. A prudent man sees danger and takes refuge, but the simple keep going and suffer for it. So, so what kind of boundaries or guardrails do we need to have specifically in our lives? I, I've written a few down here in my notes. Number one, never allow yourself to be alone with a member of the opposite sex. Never, under any circumstance, allow yourself to be alone with a member of the opposite sex. I wonder if you remember how a couple of years ago or three years ago, uh, the national news made a big story out of Vice President Mike Pence's commitment to not spend time alone with any other woman other than his wife. When that came out, I don't know if you read any of the articles that were published in liberal magazines or, or liberal newspapers or on liberal websites about it, but some of it was honestly pretty shameful. Did you ever think you would live in a country where a man was openly criticized for setting boundaries in his life that were designed to protect the sanctity of his marriage? And yet, friends, that's the kind of world that we live in. That's the sinful, fallen world that we live in. And so, listen, be very thoughtful about this. Never allow yourself to be alone with a member of the opposite sex. Another thing I wrote down is this, never hide things from your spouse. Proverbs chapter 12 and verse 20 says, there is deceit in the hearts of those who plot evil. Never hide things from your spouse. If you're hiding emails, if you're hiding Facebook messages, if you're hiding phone calls, if you're hiding online viewing habits and you can go on and on from your spouse, then listen, you need to wake up because you've got a problem. I love these words from Psalm 4 and verse 8. It says, I will lie down and sleep in peace for you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. Is there anyone listening to me who wouldn't like to be able to say those, those words? I will lie down and sleep in peace. But you can't do that if you're spending a lot of time in your life trying to hide or cover up secret things because you're worried about being found out. Get rid of those secret things. Another thing I wrote down is never allow yourself to be in a situation, and this is really critical. Never allow yourself to be in a situation where you share your personal frustrations or unmet expectations with someone of the opposite sex who is not your husband or your wife, who's not your spouse, and never allow someone of the opposite sex to do that with you. Listen, 
extramarital affairs, infidelity almost never begin with physical acts. They begin with personal acts and emotional acts. They begin with personal conversations and emotional conversations. You need to have those kind of conversations, conversations with your spouse, not with someone else, and certainly not with someone of the opposite sex. The final thing I wrote down is simply this. Never stop pursuing your spouse. Never stop pursuing them spiritually, never stop pursuing them emotionally, never stop pursuing them physically. There's a reason why God created that eros, romantic, sexual love. Never stop pursuing them practically. That's why there needs to be date nights and there needs to be getaway weekends and there needs to be certain special celebrations and even vacations in your life and in your marriage. And I could go on and on. The bottom line is we need these boundaries. We need these guardrails in our lives to protect our marriages and make sure they continue to honor God. And I'm going to push the pause button and talk just to men for a moment, not because uh, women can, are, are not ever guilty of making bad choices when it comes to uh, other relationships, but I want to talk to men because I'm a man and because I've spent a lot of time talking to men. I know how men think. I want to read these words to you from Proverbs chapter 5, verses 18 through 23. I want you to listen to them really close. May your fountain be blessed, and may you rejoice in the wife of your youth. A loving doe, a graceful deer, may her breast satisfy you always. May you ever be captivated by her love. Why be captivated, my son, by an adulteress? Why embrace the bosom of another man's wife? For a man's ways are in full view of the Lord, and he examines all his paths. Remember that. A man's ways are in full view of the Lord, and he examines all his paths. You, think you, you can think you're fooling everything else around, everyone else around you, but you never fool God. He sees everything. The evil deeds of a wicked man ensnare him. The cords of his sin hold him fast. He will die for lack of discipline, led astray by his own folly. That's Proverbs chapter 5, verses 18 through 23. And if I were to summarize those words in three, in three simple words, then this is what I'd say. And I'm saying this to all the men who are listening to me. Don't be stupid. Don't be stupid. There's too much at stake. There's too many hearts involved. There's too much to lose. Well, I'm way out of time, so I need to close. I believe in my heart that marriage is one of the greatest blessings that God has given to us. But I'm also a firm believer that great marriages don't just happen. They don't. They require commitment. They require work, effort. They require more than anything else, two people who not only want the best for each other, but who are committed to seeking what's best for each other long before worrying about what's best for them. A husband who's committed to seeking what's best for his wife long before he thinks about what's best for him. A wife who's committed to seeking what's best for her husband long before she thinks about what's best for her. And let me tell you something, if that's the kind of marriage that you have, then that's the kind of marriage that will honor God because that kind of marriage with grounded in that kind of love will reflect the same love that God has for us. I want to see you be blessed in your marriage. And you can be if you make this instruction of God, the instruction of his word, foundational to everything you do. I want you to pray with me. Father in heaven, thanks so much for the opportunity to talk about these things. I pray for every marriage 
that is listening to me right now, every husband and wife, every marriage relationship uh, that's out there, every person who longs to one day be married or, or even perhaps has plans right now, uh, marriage is something that's upcoming for them. I pray, Father, that those marriages would all reflect the kind of love uh, that you have for us and the kind of commitment to righteousness and goodness and purity that you want for us. And I pray, Father, that those marriages would not just bring great joy and great fulfillment and great satisfaction into every person's life that's involved, but more than that, that they would honor you. And I pray that in Jesus' name, amen.